Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says donate. Thank you for your kindness. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today I am with Louis Weinstock. Professionally, he's been a therapist, a coach, a meditation teacher, and social entrepreneur. But he, he says, to be honest with you, I feel uncomfortable with all, with all these labels. I am really just like you, a human being with a heart. He has specialized in the last 16 years supporting children, families, and adults to thrive by helping them get free from emotional and practical blockages. He has achieved this through a private practice as well as working with local authorities in Tier 4 mental health services as a drug and alcohol counselor, and for charities such as Counterpoint and Kids Company. He helped design and then manage therapeutic education provision for some of London's most damaged teenagers. I mean, I could go on with his bio, but I would rather leave time for us to speak together about him. So, Louis, would you tell us what else you would like us to know about yourself before we start? Sure. Well, um, thank you so much for reading out the bio, which it's quite funny hearing it back because... um, I think I wrote that a few years ago now, so it still feels uh, true mainly. And um, there's some, I guess there's some bits to add. More recently, I've been uh, working a lot with grief. So I run uh, some grief circles, some grief workshops, and I run a charity called A Part of Me which is all about helping uh, young people transform their grief into compassion. Uh, And I have a particular interest in digital technology, uh, both the the ways in which it's damaging our children's minds and also the ways in which the power of technology can be harnessed to help children and families develop those qualities that we... um, that I feel we really need to be able to survive and thrive in the 21st century. So uh, perhaps we would start with you telling us a little bit of your story and what has brought you here today. Sure. Um, Well, I guess I have um, one place that I uh, often start with sharing my story is how I discovered meditation when I was younger and it was kind of quite a coincidence or a synchronicity of some sort but I was actually about 11 and I um, was feeling really rough I had like a, some kind of a flu or something mm-hmm. and I remember sitting in my room in the evening and had a tape player then with my dad's uh, cassette tapes with music on and I played some music um, and uh, I just closed my eyes and started to 
breathe differently and notice that by breathing differently and sort of settling my attention into my body, I could actually help myself to feel a bit better, almost like to alleviate the the mental suffering that I was experiencing around the symptoms. And that was like a little portal into the mind, I guess, and um, what's possible with the human mind. And um, and then I didn't really do anything with that at all. That portal opened and then it closed. And uh, nothing really happened with that until I was uh, in my early 20s and I discovered meditation again. Again, quite randomly, it was... Um, I was living in just outside of Montreal in a place called Sherbrooke. And um, I discovered a book on yoga and meditation. And that that time, it really did open the portal. And I got really fascinated by meditation. And I started studying it and traveled, meeting different meditation teachers and um, uh, going on various retreats. Uh, and I still, to this day, maintain uh, a fairly regular meditation practice although it's quite challenging when you have a young daughter Hmm. Uh, so I'm finding some creative ways to fit it in and then alongside that from about 17 18 I started to develop some interest in uh, helping people who were struggling with life I'm sure it's partly from my family because my mum has worked in charities and then she did some amazing work in the civil service with children and young people. So I think I was definitely influenced by her. And uh, my dad is a GP, so I kind of have a caring energy in my family. Uh, and I also had a, a, I feel it was a slightly troubled adolescence where I went a bit off the rails and got in trouble. Uh, quite a lot and um, had this turning point when I was 17 where I'd gotten in a lot of trouble. My my parents were really, really upset with me and uh, there was just kind of a bit of a scene in the house and uh, the next day I woke up and I just thought, I don't really want to carry on causing suffering for the people around me. And I did this, now it feels a bit childish, but I did this kind of... uh, post-it note where I drew two smiley faces. I did a smiley face plus a smiley face equals smiley faces. And that was my sort of quite childish way in a way of making a bit of a commitment at that time that I wanted to focus more of my energy on trying to help people rather than just creating suffering. So that's kind of the origin story of how I started slowly to get interested in working with um, children and young people, working with people on the edges of society, um, working with offenders and um, people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, Yeah, that's kind of like an overview, really. So you talk about uh, the fact that uh, there's an invisible harm that is penetrating our children and uh, that has several there's several layers to that uh you speak about the environment you spe- speak about how captivated how hijacked kidnapped our attention is would you mm. talk to us about that sure i feel that we in the uh, Western world of the 21st century are materially well off, much better than we've ever been. And, um, you know, we've cured illnesses and we don't suffer with uh, as many of the more visible harms that we may have done in previous times. But I've always found it interesting, this kind of shadow side of the idea of progress, that the more materially comfortable we are, there seems to be this shadow side where psychologically it appears that we suffer more. And I think that seems to be particularly true of children and um, 
statistically, um, particularly in the UK and I know in the US, probably in, in many other places, we've seen this really worrying rise in mental health problems and psychological distress amongst our children and young people. And uh, for me, uh, it feels important to, to, to know that the causes of that are largely from the society and the world that we are creating. And it's not easy to pinpoint those causes. It's not like if you burn your finger on a candle and it will really hurt and then you'll probably see a blister. Mm -hmm. You can see that arm. Um, but with mental health in general and with some of the things that I believe are creating this dramatic rise in suffering amongst our children, many of those harms are invisible. And that doesn't mean that they're any less real uh, and any less significant. It's just that it can be a bit harder to pinpoint. And I believe it because they're invisible, it can be a bit easier to ignore. And so I feel it's kind of increasingly part of my mission to really bring attention to some of these invisible harms and the very visible effects that they have on our on the inner world of our young uh, children and young people in their minds. And yeah, I don't want to go on too much, but some of the invisible harms that you mentioned, like yes. um, the design of addictive technologies and social media, um, particularly the way that we are experiencing and learning about the climate crisis and how that is affecting uh, children and young people's minds. I'm seeing more and more in my practice and the young people that I speak to um, varying degrees of uh, overwhelm and um, quite intense emotional reactions to what's going on in the world. And there's obviously this growing sense that we're approaching this critical situation or not approaching it we're already in it yes and the children and young people don't have the tools to know how to deal with it so they're exposed to the information at a click of a button and a little scroll you can see pictures of raging fires pictures of children with gas masks on um, pictures of all sorts of devastation and we don't and, and we haven't yet got the frameworks in place to actually help equip our children and young people with the tools that will help them to know how to navigate these emotions. I mean, the adults are barely just working it out. So part of my mission at the moment is to try and find ways to help um, share these tools with um, children, young people, and those who are responsible for them. So... How do you help a child who is assaulted with uh, porn, climate crisis, the legacy of the 20th century, which is pretty terrible, and the fact that, uh, that parents are really not equipped to uh, face the... Uh, The, the great dis, dis ease of their children. I mean, that would be, that would be one of the greatest ones for me is, uh, parents are absolutely not equipped to face the dis ease of their children. Mm. You, you said it really beautifully, Joanna. And, um, I like the fact that you said dis ease because Uh, when you describe the suffering we're seeing in our children's minds like that, it's a way of opening up uh, uh, to their sensitivity to what's going on around, the, around them without pathologizing. Right. And one of the perspectives that I hold very strongly when I work with uh, children, young people and parents and professionals is that we have to start listening to their distress as 
a intelligent response to the world around them. And I have um, a kind of um, framework for doing that, which I call radical alchemy. And um, radical alchemy is just um, a term that really describes just a different way of listening to the inner world and the distress that we see in our children. And the idea uh, behind radical alchemy is that if we can listen to the distress in our children as an intelligent response to the world around them, we have a chance of helping them to feel more empowered and equipped rather than feeling like there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, such a huge problem is that uh, a huge amount of the distress that children present with to doctors, to mental health services. Sadly, the system is set up in a way that that distress gets largely medicalized and pathologized. Mm -hmm. And what that actually means is that the children and their parents end up feeling like there's something wrong with them. Yes. And they end up feeling bad about themselves. Whereas what I try and uh, show is a different way of looking, which shows that actually there isn't anything wrong with you, but this distress that you're experiencing can and perhaps should be explained as a really deeply wise response from your body to a world around you that is not supporting your deepest needs. Does that make sense? Well, Louis, um, here's here's what I I would say to you and... uh, look forward to your wisdom about. Uh, Mm. There is something wrong with us, and it's that it seems to me, I don't know because I don't know about the past generations, but it seems that our capacity for unconditional love is growing narrower and narrower. It seems like our capacity for unconditional love is being replaced by more and more extreme forms of narcissism. So to come back, we don't know how to practice unconditional love and we don't know how to pass it on, on the contrary. So this is tough. Mm, Yes. It's really hard, and I do believe that um, uh, I don't like using the word system because it's so abstract, but I can't think of a better word, but Mm -hmm. the sort of economic uh, system that we live in Mm -hmm. is predicated on growth. Uh, Growth is the primary uh, motivation, and what happens with that is that we never or we lose touch with our capacity to feel like who and what we are and what we have is enough. And for me, that's kind of like a simple version of unconditional love is when we can actually feel like we are enough mm-hmm. and that our children are enough. Um, and what they're experiencing, we can welcome it instead of feeling like we need to do something quickly about it to get rid of the anxiety so that they can get the best A-level results so that, you know, the school can continue to have um, uh, a top spot in the school league tables, you know, so they can be competitive in the world and in the market. And I do think a lot of that comes from compassion. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not easy to... Uh, be responsible for children, I don't think, in this day and age. There's so many competing pressures, and it does make it hard to find moments to tap into that space that you describe, really lovely um, space of unconditional love. Well, I mean, how do we... Um, I mean, how can we meet the violence the self-harming and uh, the despair of our children with compassion when when 
it is so frightening for us. Mm. Absolutely. I think, uh, and I would always say this, um, that the first port of call uh, for any grown-ups who are responsible for children is that we really do have to find a way to be with the most challenging feelings and the most uncomfortable truths that we are aware of. We have to be aware of our defense mechanisms that keep us distracted from those uncomfortable feelings and those uncomfortable truths. And it's only our capacity to be able to sit with those difficult feelings. The extent to which we can do that is the extent to which we can be okay with and meet those same difficult feelings in our children with unconditional love. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really, really good point that you make. Mm -hmm. And to be able to sit with those difficult feelings uh, requires us to unplug ourselves from the distraction slash attention economy, okay. which in many ways is designed beautifully to almost get us to this kind of nirvana where we never have to face up to the uncomfortable feelings and the uncomfortable truths. Um, it seems strange to say that when there's so much flying around uh, on social media that is predicated on fear and outrage. But what social media isn't designed to do is to help us to take a seat or to take a step back and just to be able to sit with those uncomfortable feelings. So this sort of like um, the culture of comfort and convenience really makes it difficult for us to do that. But I feel like the adults, particularly those who are responsible for children, need huge amounts of discipline to extract themselves. Um, and it's not easy. I, I don't find it easy to do that sometimes, and I definitely feel distracted, and I definitely find when I'm with my daughter yeah. the sort of nagging uh, feeling or anxiety the pull towards my computer or my phone, like wondering what emails there might be there or something that I just need to check. It's like that really addictive um, itch that needs to be scratched. So I really do feel that. Uh, and it, it is going to take a lot of discipline and a lot of practice to extract ourselves. Wow. Sort of like... Uh... When we're on social media, we think we're playing, but actually it's the end of play. It's the death of play. And children and adults need to play with each other. Absolutely. And um, we can only play when we feel safe. Yes. Play is a sign that we are safe. So if you... Um, if you're a child and you see your parents are in a playful mood, it gives you a sign that things are okay and things are safe. But when our nervous systems are constantly being triggered into a state of uh, either uh, fight or flight, yes, or if it's kind of this dopamine-fueled state of constantly seeking rewards, uh, then we're not accessing our natural capacity for play mm. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not play there's the other elements too one of the um, if I may just make a little bit of a tangent Joanna of but um, one of a study that I read recently that I found so fascinating it was a study uh, a, a neurological study of people who were struggling with um, complicated grief which is a kind of a term to describe people who have experienced a loss and they're finding themselves unable to move on from it after a period of time and experiencing various symptoms around it. And um, they discovered that um, people who were experiencing a complicated grief 
seem to have uh, the part of their brain that's associated with uh, producing dopamine highly activated. Mm -hmm. Reading sort of an interpretation of that is that if we're constantly seeking a reward in the future and win this dopamine fueled state, we're not actually able to process uh, a range of feelings. We're not able to process our grief. We're not able to tap into our sense of play. So I found that really interesting. Just it was almost like um, it was just showing really that uh, if we are um, pursuing these future uh, faced reward seeking uh, activities constantly, which is so much of what uh, digital technology is designed to do, uh-huh. and we're unable literally unable our brains are unable to access these important human qualities like play mm-hmm. and grief and love mm-hmm. yeah in your in your work and in your in your understanding how do you liberate do you help people children and adults liberate grief from the from the clutches of shame and guilt. Mm, that is a uh, a lovely and uh, interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one project that I'm working on at the moment that would probably be a helpful insight. We're we're, we're designing with a group of uh, amazing young people who have all experienced uh, bereavement. We're designing a new um, service for a part of me, which is this charity I mentioned. And the service is about how can we create better communities for young people who are going through grief. Um, And the reason we felt this was important is because, um, well, partly it was triggered by a young person getting in touch with me after we launched the, uh, the app last year. And he'd been involved in helping to design uh, the app, very, uh, very involved. And suddenly after we launched it, uh, there was less contact with the actual process of the service. And he messaged me one day and just said, I really miss our community. And I never really uh, fully recognized that what we were doing as we co-designed the app and bringing, you know, groups of young people and parents and professionals together to share their stories of grief and to help them to turn it into something that can help others turn it into this creative, compassionate thing. I didn't really fully understand how important the community aspect of that was for the young people, that they had a space or a series of spaces that they could come to where they didn't feel shame uh, about their grief and they didn't feel so alone in their grief. And so we decided that we wanted to start designing um, a community service. And so we're working with this group of young people at the moment. And um, I guess that's the backstory, but the kind of principles that are coming through that work in terms of um, answering your question, Mm -hmm. um, I think it really starts with people, uh, peers, like young peers being role models being authentic and certainly that's been my experience when young people have an experience where they're met in their grief without shame and just with compassion and acceptance that is ultimately de-shaming and what I've noticed is if young people have enough of those experiences then they can feel empowered to take that and offer that to other young people so my kind of hope in a way is uh, and I think we're seeing this anyway in general. We're definitely seeing a trend in in um, young people on social media and yep. um, starting to experiment with being more vulnerable online at least. Now, definitely there are some issues with that. Um, it's a bit sticky because um, being vulnerable online in social media where yep. so much of it is about getting likes uh, there is this kind of, what I, I've called it in a, a talk I did, um, it's like the vulnerability paradox. Because I've seen young people who 
were using Instagram quite heavily and they were so obsessively monitoring each post to see how many likes they were getting. And one young person uh, I worked with was monitoring their posts so heavily. Every time they posted a picture that they'd done a photoshopped picture of themselves looking, you know, they're having fun and it's all this uh, perfect looking lifestyle. And if they didn't get more than a certain number of likes, I think it was 50 likes in 10 minutes, then they would delete the post. Uh-huh. So they're really obsessively curating images of themselves, which probably isn't that much of a surprise, but it really struck me how intense it is. But this young girl then decided that she was going to take a stand and start posting unphotoshopped, vulnerable pictures of herself online. And this was great and it sounded amazing, but the only slight sort of sticky aspect to it was that she then became quite hooked on the fact that people loved her vulnerability and that I, I could see how that was starting to shift into a, a sort of obsession in and of itself. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, mm. I have that experience on Facebook. I write very vulnerable mm. posts and mm. uh and I get a lot of likes for them, and uh, and I crave that. Mm. Yeah, but at what? It's so po- tricky, isn't it? It's so tricky, but at what point mm. is that craving for community? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't have the words. At what point is 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 that bad for us? Because. Basically, it's a craving for community. It's a craving to be loved, and it is. And and it what is. proves it is that I see the more vulnerable my my writing, the more likes I get. Mm. Uh, but at what point is that uh, counterproductive? Yes. Well, I'm not sure if this. Is a, it's not really a full answer to your question, but sure. one thing I've been quite clear about uh, and really interested in the sort of biology behind this is that human beings are wired to need face-to-face connection. And there is a real limit to how much nourishment you can get from these online interactions. And that has a deep biological basis. I don't know if you've come across, Joanna, the work of Stephen Porge or people like that. Mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. Yeah, so yes, um, I love his work. And um, he, I feel he gives a really good um, and uh, with a great expertise scientific account of human biological need for face-to-face contacts. And you can't get that online. And um, I've had so many... Uh, experiences of that with the young people I work with. Um, one that comes to mind, there was a, a boy I worked with who was completely addicted to playing uh, online multiplayer games. And he was also struggling with a depression. And he came to see me one day uh, and he told me that the night before he'd been playing this amazing, immersive uh, multiplayer video game online with hundreds of friends from around the world and whilst they're playing the game they really are part of a kind of virtual community and they're chatting with each other Uh, there's so much um, interaction social interaction going on and he said that as soon as he came off playing the game he felt completely overwhelmed by this sense of loneliness he said it was such a deep sense of loneliness that he'd never felt before and he couldn't understand why he said i've just been chatting to all these people and i can't understand why i feel so lonely and for me it made sense that the kind of connection that he was getting online was really um superficial in many ways mm-hmm. and not I'm not negating it I think it's so important that young people can have this connection right. and I think it's amazing in so many ways but we can't let go of the basic fact that we really need face-to-face 
connection, warm, loving human connection to make us feel safe. That is just deeply written into our biology. And, and also, just from a, my own personal values, I, I feel that's something that uh, I want to nurture. So although I do work in um, developing digital technology, a yeah. big part of our design principle is, is figuring out ways that we can connect the online world to the offline world. This is absolutely fascinating because um, I think of my own experience where I go, uh, I go through this town and people recognize me because they read my post and they've seen my picture and they talk mm. to me like I'm an intimate friend and mm. I have no idea who they are. I, I mm. cannot recognize them because because I don't. Uh, mm. And so you, there's a lot to think about there. There's a lot to think and feel about. Uh, mm. Yeah. What do you what do you notice, Joanna? What do you feel when that happens? Well, I've never thought about it. Uh, you know, I I think I think, oh my God, this person is showing me so much warmth, and I have no mm. idea who they are. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and but before you mentioned this, I never thought about wh- how do I feel about that. Uh, mm. I have a superficial thing, of course. Back back to back to the difference between love and narcissism that we were mm. talking about. I have a superficial thing about oh look uh, how um, how recognized I am. Uh, mm, of course, of course. But is yeah. is that look how loved I am from face to face, body to body sensation? Mm. Anyway, yes. fascinating subject. Fascinating. Mm. There is, um, if I may, share one sure. short story of a, sure. another young person that I worked with um, quite a long time ago now. Um, but um, uh, this young person was very active on social media and she she did what you could call well on social media. You know, she did nice posts on Instagram and she had like a good following and she got a lot of likes. Um, but she was struggling with an anxiety, uh, which is partly why she came to see me. And... A big part of that anxiety was that she felt really uncomfortable speaking at school to her friends and her peers because she didn't feel that she could live up to this persona that she'd created mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I'm fairly sure that that will be quite a common experience amongst young people. And again, it's as we said earlier on, it's something that I feel they um, more generally could really benefit from more wise education about. I'm so interested, you know, because uh, uh, I love what happens, how how we inspire each other to to language things. And uh, so this idea of uh, the difference between the, the fine line, maybe, or maybe it's a thick line, between love, warmth, and narcissism, the danger line there. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, uh, an American uh, academic called Jean Twenger, I don't know if you came across her. Not yet. But she's written, she's written uh, really well about the age of narcissism. And, um, yeah, so I think you're absolutely... Um, it's so helpful to start to draw out that distinction, that sort of whatever the line is, grey, thin, thick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to yeah. sort of start to tease this out a bit more. Maybe a helpful way... To look at this situation as it's giving us, um, you know, 
through our online presences and uh, social media, it's giving us an opportunity to really look at these things because these things aren't new human phenomenon. Uh, uh, they, these sort of um, emotional experiences and these hooks have existed for thousands of years. It's just the form and the medium through which we pursue them has changed and that has some different effects. Mm -hmm. You know, humans have always needed love and warmth. Sure. And there's also been a, a side of us that can be tempted towards narcissism. Right, right. Well, you, you seem to speak a lot about the the cure for this dis-ease um, is unconditional love. So what does that look like for you, the practice and the help you can give to others as well? Um... I would say my relationship with unconditional love has evolved over time. And how I feel at the moment is that unconditional love is uh, the highest value that we can aspire to as human beings. But it doesn't mean that we uh, just accept the state of things around us and i think maybe that's a risk in some some ways of understanding that idea um i still feel there's a space for a sense of justice within that um and so the current way i work with it um in my own clinical work is mm -hmm. if somebody comes to see me, I do have a, a, a series of practices where I connect myself to my heart and I connect myself to my capacity for compassion before I see a client. And as much as I can, I'm tuned in to that space that you could call unconditional love when I am with uh, a, a child or a parent or whoever it is who's sitting with me. And at the same time, from that space, more recently I've been feeling a need to, as I said earlier, be clear that some things are okay and some things aren't okay, that we can transform the emotional energy that we experience into compassionate action in the world. And that... Um, can and should come from a place, I believe, of unconditional love. I do feel quite strongly, Joanna, that um, it's easy to say the words unconditional love, but uh -huh. resting in that place, resting in that place yeah. is a challenge. Yeah. And maybe it's, as we said, increasingly a challenge. So my particular interest at the moment is how can we develop systems that can help us to remember that place within us. And um, I, I do believe that religions have something helpful. They do have something helpful to teach us. Um, the structures that they have in place, the rituals, uh, the sort of non-negotiables, if you like. Um, when I grew up, Joanna, uh, okay. I grew up in a Jewish household and I always have felt, looking back, that the Friday night dinner, the Shabbat dinner, was yes. an absolute non-negotiable in my household. Like, whatever you did that weekend, you had to be there for that dinner. And there was no devices, and there was some ritual around it, and it was a family gathering, face-to-face -face gathering. Um, I really feel we need to um, find ways to recreate that um, sacred canopy is the term that... Um, Peter Berger used for it, the mm -hmm. sacred canopy mm -hmm. yes. that just sort of keeps us remembering these divine human qualities like unconditional love that we can access. 
So that's my particular interest. And there's another project I'm working on at the moment where we're looking at how we can uh, help families uh, who may not follow a religion or be spiritual at all, but how can they embed these kind of rituals and habits that help them to connect to that place? Yes, how? That's very, very interesting. Uh, how can we create uh, rituals in a non-religious context? Yes. Well, my um, my good friend Tiu Dehan in London is um, she's brilliant on rituals, so she'd have a lot more to say about this than me. But my basic understanding is we this really obvious things like we need to disconnect from our devices for a period of time, even if it's just five minutes or ten minutes. You have to disconnect from your devices to be able to drop into that sense of the sacred, to be able to drop into the present moment. And then you can fill the ritual space with many different things. I Just earlier today, I was supporting some parents who were having some uh, difficulties with their teenage son. And uh, family mealtimes were a really big issue, and they didn't have any regular family meal times at all and there was no structure around it and so the teenage son was just saying no i don't want to eat with you now and where we got to by the end of the session was just well it's quite simple really but just start by set setting a regular and non-negotiable family meal time together and agree between you some uh, rules that everyone feels okay to sign up to around that. Mm-hmm. And then starting the meal, there's such simple things that you can do to, which are all really learned from uh, spiritual and religious traditions, like saying uh, gratitude at the start of a meal. Yes. It's so simple, um, but it requires, there is an element of shame there for people who aren't used to doing it. There's some shame that comes up or some cynicism about it. Yes. Uh, but actually, it's finding ways to make it more inclusive. And um, there's simple ways of doing that. Like, um, there's like little games you can play. Gratitude. Let's think about the journey that the food has been on to arrive at our plate. Like, how many people do you think have been involved in that? And maybe we can be a bit grateful to them. Beautiful. That makes sense. Really beautiful. I like it a lot. Um, perhaps you'd like to uh, speak to us in uh, in closing about uh, the app, a part of me that you've created together with other youth. Yes. Well, um, uh, with with Ben and a team of amazing uh, volunteers and some freelancers who I really want to express uh, gratitude to because um, there's been such an amazing team, growing team of volunteers who are working behind the scenes to grow the community. Um, but essentially, a part of me is free. Uh, there's no cost at all. And it's available on the app and the Play Store. And it's really been designed with a lot of thought and care and love to help young people, particularly, who are going through a bereavement, um, whether it's having someone close to them who has a, a terminal illness or whether it's someone who's died. It's designed to help them find a safe space in their own time where they can learn a bit about the emotions they might be experiencing. They can hear stories from other young people. They can access some meditations specifically designed, really short, simple meditations to help them find a bit of peace within what can often be really overwhelming emotions. And there's some other things on the island. It's designed on a peaceful um, island and there's characters that you meet. So yeah, just um, please, I guess, um, if you know anyone who you think might benefit from it, just let them know. It's called A Part of Me. The website is apartofme.app. And, um, yeah, I think that's probably it. Good.
Well, uh, I want to ask you at this point, first of all, thank you um, for this really nourishing conversation. And Thank you. Thank you so much. Good. And uh, perhaps ask you what, what would you like to say in closing? Take a moment and come back to us. Mm. What comes to mind is, given the context that we've been talking about today, Joanna, where so many elements of the world around us are designed to make us feel like we're not enough. Mm. I really believe one of the most simple and radical things that we can do is to take regular moments to stop and remember that we are absolutely perfectly enough in this moment. And a really simple mantra that I share with children, young people and, and adults is just, I am enough, I am enough, I am enough. Uh, that just feels just a simple thing to, to share, but it's so simple and at the same time it has a radical power in a world that is, as I say, designed to really consistently and quite aggressively make us feel that we're not enough. Thank you so much, Louis, for your generosity. Thank you so much. I've really uh, enjoyed it. <laughs>